Hello and welcome to the Breaking the Guard podcast with me and Robert Drysdale. On this episode, Robert and I catch up a little and we talk about the importance of having a good safety culture in the martial arts. Uh, we're in a sport where the goal is to knock out or maim your opponent. When we're training, we don't want to be doing that, so we have to train smart. And um, I talk about I've seen, uh, I made a Facebook I mean, a post about this as well, about training with women or lighter people or white belts. So we go all over the board talking about the different scenarios and Robert and I's opinion about uh, how to handle these type of situations in a safe and fair manner. So uh, if you're a big dude or you're a little dude or you're a man or a woman, uh, there, there should be something to pick apart here and learn from, uh, particularly if you have... If you're only seeing it from one perspective, we try to sh- share from all points of view as best we can, at least. So uh, go ahead and tune in, and I hope you enjoy. Before we get started, I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, which is the Front Headlock Series. The Front Headlock Series which is a course of mine, which you can find at frontheadlock.com. It covers the wrestling headlock, which is a very powerful position that will allow you to control your opponent, take them down, submit them take the back. It's pretty much one of the best uh, grips you can get in a fight. Uh, If you follow the old adage, where the head goes, the body follows, it works true physically (laughs) in fighting as it does mentally or metaphorically. So uh, it's a three DVD course. It's available also in online streaming format. You could pick it up and learn more about it by visiting frontheadlock.com. Hey guys, what's going on? David Avalon here with Robert Drysdale for another episode of Breaking the Guard. Robert, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Dave. Thanks for thanks for reminding me. We, we scheduled something last night, you know, and then I did not reply to Dave. Dave's like, Rob, are we doing this or what? And like, I finished my MMA class. I'm like, oh, rush over. So thanks for that. But yeah, good to be here. Just busy as always. Yep, yep. I know. Uh, getting ready for a trip to Tahiti. Guys living the dream life. We were just talking about like asking Dave if he wants to switch lives. We're talking about the hardship of being a gym owner because it's one of those jobs that everyone that's in fighting wants that. Like if you're a fighter and you don't make it big time, maybe you're like your fallback plan is always opening the gym, right? Everyone has that in the back of their mind. But I think the few jobs will pin you down as much as being a gym owner. For sure. It's a lot of responsibility. Because not only do you have to run the business, but you're also managing this little culture, this tribe of people. It's a tribe of people. And they all have different ways of pulling each other. So it makes it very difficult. It's the social element that's that's so hard to me. It's not the work itself. It's just like like any other business, right? And it's hard for other business owners to understand this because they don't see that. They only see the business side. It's only when they throw themselves in there that they see the social aspect and how important hierarchies are to people and how they're constantly changing. And people, like, they get along today, tomorrow they don't. And you're in the middle of all this, literally just kind of handling all of it. So it pins you down, wears you out. But there's still a, it's still very rewarding in a sense where I get a kick out of watching my students win. I really oh, enjoy sure. that. Like, to me, it's like, it's not the same as winning yourself, but it's, it's a small little taste. You know, kinda, it is a little bit like it. Yeah, in some ways, I find it's more rewarding when you have students that are very successful, especially, at least for me, I like those uh, 
rags to riches stories where you have a guy who's too left feet, clumsy, yeah. very unconfident, and then you make that guy an ass kicker. It's like, man, that's something, you know, like, yeah. I helped get this guy there. You know, So I find that very rewarding. I feel like that's kind of like how I was. I was a fat, chubby kid, shy, and I kind of developed into who I am now, you know, so I, I, I think that's the best part of yeah. teaching is it's, it doesn't take as much work to get somebody who's already a superstar and make them a little better. You know, like that guy, he could have probably gone anywhere and he would do well, you know. But like when you get somebody who like nobody else wants and you make that guy, you know, you shine that turd and <laughs> make it a diamond, yeah. then that's something that's And it special. takes a good coach to do that. But like above a good coach, it takes a good environment. I think that the mm-hmm. environment is as important as the good coaching. And a lot of people overlook that. But it, the... the I always say this, you know, like a coach's job is not just teach technique and be a good coach and like a sports psychologist pretty much you become like almost like a father figure, but is managing that environment so it's a good one. If the environment is good, I think everything flows better. The learning yes. process is easier, less drama, less rivalries. Everyone's watching out for themselves, for their partners. I got a new motto at the gym. I might have mentioned the last podcast. I can't remember now, but is like your top priorities, making sure your partners are safe. Yes. Yeah, that's the top priority. And the other one is fighting is a team sport. Yep. I think we got to change that mindset where fighting is about me, me, me. And I don't believe in that. I think that fighting is a team sport and it's better for every for the individuals if we start thinking of it that way. Because now you are watching out for your partner. You want him to win and he wants you to win. We actually make progress. We're going to talk about a game of inches here today. We're talking about the difference between first and second is not a lot. Yeah. I think those little small uh, uh, um, improvements inside the gym that you make when people are actually wanting you to get better, they want you to improve, I think that makes a big difference. 100%. You know, that's funny because I just posted something today about the safety protocol because I don't know if you've been seeing it, but on my Facebook feed, I've been seeing all these posts about men training with women. And yeah. one of them's like, oh, how do I say no to training with a woman? And one guy's like, oh, a woman asked me to go 100% and I'm 6 foot 3, 280 pounds, and I did. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I want to take some time to talk about it. Even though I posted about it, I think it'll be interesting here. For one, I, to me, it's never mattered if it's man, woman, whatever the hell you want to call yourself, child. You're, if you want to train, we train. Yeah. But now how intense you train, that's a different story, right? Like, me and you are both bigger guys. Yeah. And I haven't trained with any woman close to my size, you know, so I'm always going light. I, I feel like safety factor has to play a role in there. If I'm going, I see it like if I'm grappling with a child, if I'm going with like a 80 pound kid and I go 100% in them, I'm going to destroy him. And even if the kid's more dental good, I'm just going to hurt him. So I'm just a big dude, you know, like much bigger, but stronger than him. And I think it's the same way if you're going with a woman. If you got like a 100-pound weight advantage, you're going 100% on them, like for real, 100%. You're going to hurt that person. Yeah, and then you're the, you can't win that one because if you go too easy, they're like, oh, you tell me that I'm not as athletic as you because like we have that whole quality thing now. It's such, a, it's such a, a strong theme in society. And then if you beat them up, you're the asshole. It's, it's one of those lose-lose situations. I don't like to train with beginners between me and you. I avoid training with white belts. I'll train with them as a private or something yeah. like that, but I avoid it because they hurt me more than I hurt them, to be honest. Like, they're constantly, you know, and then, you know, if you're going to train with, like, someone's a lot smaller, you be maybe a child or a woman, you, you got to be super careful because I can put my weight, if I get the side control on you, Dave, and I put 100% of my weight on you, you may not like it, yeah. but you're not going to get hurt. Correct. If I put 
like half, I feel like if I put half my weight on, like they, 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 they get too uncomfortable, and then they have their breasts, and then you're pulling their hair. Next time you reach for the head, so they, all these things you got to watch out for. And I can't be me. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I don't like it because I don't get a kick out of it because I can't do what I want to do. I get a kick out of a challenge. I get a kick out of someone who I can fight hard and they can fight hard back. I'm getting the endorphins from that. If I'm not getting that, I am just helping you. But I'm not really that much of a help either because I'm not being realistic enough. So neither of us are getting anything out of this. Maybe a little bit. You yeah. see what I'm saying? There's too much of a discrepancy of weight and sometimes skill level. And I just feel like it's we're not really engaged in jujitsu. We're not really grappling here. It's just me trying to be lighter and you know, you trying to move a guy that's twice your size and you can't. Yeah. I I have two minds about it. One, like I'll roll with white belts or blue belts or whatnot. But I'm just playing a t- totally different game, right? Like, you know, if I'm going to go with a white belt, and it doesn't matter they're my size, if I go 100% of them, I'm going to destroy them. Right? Yeah. And it's not going to be entertaining for me because it's, like, too easy. And then it's not going to be good for them because they're just getting smashed nonstop, you know? So if I'm going with somebody I feel I have any huge advantage over, whether it's size, strength, or technique, I go light. But... To me, that means different things. If it's just like technique-wise, then I'm going to play a particular type of game, maybe one I'm not good at, just to see how yeah. I can pull it off, right? And I'm giving them resistance. You know, They're going to have a hard time as it is. If it's somebody who's weaker than me or lighter than me, then I don't put all my weight on them. If I feel like I'm too big to be on top, I'll just play off my back. So I try to work things that... I won't be able to use my advantages as much. So I'm putting a handicap on myself, right? Because you're right. It's not realistic. Like in that one situation, this guy was 280. I'm assuming the woman's like 120 pounds, 140 pounds. It's too much size. Like you will hurt. Like the closest equivalent I have uh, is my student, Locolo. He's six foot three, 350 pounds. Just enormous. And he's a pro belt now, so he's very technical. But whenever I train with him, 90% chance I'm leaving with a, some sort of pain or injury. Yeah. He's just too big of a guy. You know, and, it's and not like. And you're a fighter, you're yeah. an athlete. Imagine someone, like a, a smaller woman, who doesn't have that background, who right. just got started. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm 108 pounds, I'm lifting weights all the time, I'm, I'm pretty strong, and still I'm going to get hurt, right? It's just because I'm dealing with so much size. And it's not like he's being a jerk either. It's just. You could only be so gentle, yeah. <laughs> 350 pounds, no, you know? I agree. So, I mean, what I, what I was telling people, like, if you want to challenge yourself like that, I get it, but you can't do that every day. It's like, uh, again, I'm, I'm weightlifting so much, so I think everything weightlifting. It's like doing max lifts every day. Yeah. You're going to hurt yourself. It's just a matter of time. Like, you're supposed to max lift once every six months, once a year, or something like that. So, like, if you want to challenge yourself and give yourself, like, an absolute tournament experience, maybe one, seldomly, yeah. you know, because... Like I said, for the other guy, it's going to be, for the bigger guy, it's also awkward. Because, like, you're like, well, I can't. The the way I was describing it, it's like trying to corral chickens. Have you ever been in the farm and done that? Sounds horrible. It, it's horrible, particularly roosters. It's just beaks and claws. And you're trying to be gentle, like, okay, here yeah. you go. And, and you're like, You're super aggressive, yeah. yeah. So, like, what you were saying about white belts being more dangerous to yeah. roll with, I agree. For me, the lighter white belt. Like somebody, I consider like 140 pounds yeah. and a white belt. I'm just seeing elbows flying all over the place. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because they're like, they're, yeah. they know they're smaller, so they have to overcompensate. But then they don't have the control that comes with it. 
So it's like trying to put a cat in a bath, you know? It's just like, yeah, and not only that, I think that a lot of times, like, uh, not just white belts, but women and, like, you know, people that are smaller than you in general, they feel like, oh, you know, Rob's a superhero. He's a big guy. He can take a knee to the balls, you know? Like, no, I can't. I don't want to, you know? But, like, they roll with you. And they're not too. They don't realize even though they're all small, they can still hurt you. Yes, exactly. And it's not, they're not going to injure you, but it's going to be you know shin to the nuts, or it's going to be a headbutt, or they're going to grab. They grab the gi, they grab your hair, and they pull it. They don't have. I'm serious. They do that all the time. You know, like little stuff like that. You know, the elbows are flying, and they think that because you're bigger than them, they can't really hurt you. And then if you complain something, they're like, "Oh, I supposed. I thought you're supposed to be a tough guy." I'm like, "Yeah, I could. I'm. You know, I'm, I'm not a wuss. You know, like I can. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you want to get. You know." You know, when you're going for a guillotine, you don't want someone digging their nails into your hands. Correct. People yes. do that all the time, especially the less skilled they are. The thing, the more they do, they think they can because they're smaller. Right, right. You know? That's, That's why think. it's a weird dynamic. It's like, wait a second, man. I'm going easy on you. Like, no need to scratch, you know, dig your nails into my hands. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a, there's a responsibility on both sides, I feel like. Because at the end of the day, you know, you're a school owner. I am as well. I want everybody who walks into the gym to be better once they walk out. Correct. But that can't happen if people are getting injured all the time, right? So, like, I feel if you're the bigger guy, be responsible, right? You know, you're looking out for the safety of that guy. Pretend it's your own kid. You're not going to crush your own kid. I, I hope not. Right? <laughs> going 100% on them, right? Like, you have to be cautious with the use of force, right? That's why I, I feel like I, I'm, uh, when I'm training with someone who I'm better than, I'm trying to be more precision, right? More precise with my application mm-hmm. of force. Like, if I'm going to go for a rear naked, I'm not just going to go right across the jawline and yeah. squeeze as hard as I can. Like, no, okay, let me try to be as technical as possible. I'm going to try to slip, yeah. dig, fish, and get a really clean choke. So, like, I use minimal force to finish. But if you're the smaller guy, I, I feel like you have to understand that too, right? Like, this guy, he's not going 100% on you. Be, I, you have to go harder than he is, but at the same time, control yourself. Yeah. Don't, like for me, I, I, there's a few people I, I know that every time I roll them, it's like, boom, elbow or headbutt, you know? And then they're they're very sensitive the other way around, which is kind of annoying too. I feel it's like the corralling chickens. Well, example. I'm not going to, yeah. I'm not going to like mention names, yeah. but there are people in the gym that they're constantly, like they go at an intensity. And what happens is if you're going balls to the wall with me, like, okay, well, yeah. turning the volume up, you know, and, and I'm okay with that. I right. like that. But when you do it to them, they don't like, whoa, man, why are you going so hard? I'm like, they're completely <laughs> not, they're unaware of how they roll, right? So it's almost like, oh, I want to play by a certain rules, but you can't. I love it when people tell me, let's go easy. Because oh, to me, that's so code. Translation is, I'm going to go really hard. I want you to go easy because I want to beat you. That's what they're really saying, right? But then when the words are like that, it's like, man, let's go easy. And like nine out of 10, they try to kill you. Yeah. So I already know, man. Like my 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 alarms go off just like that, and like, oh, go easy, okay, easy, my ass. And I just I'll give them like the benefit of the doubt for the first five seconds. <laughs> if I see them spazzing out just a little bit, I know it's on. Yeah. You know, but they they get upset because you know it's funny if if you pay close attention, the people who are upset and complaining about hard training, or like, oh, everyone's hurting me, I'm the victim. Always the same people too. Like, I, I've, see, I've noticed that. It's, like, always, like, some people that they always have to be the victim on the mats. You know, like, oh, it's poor me, hurting me, everyone's hurting me. Why is everyone hurting me? And I'm, like, I don't think you're, anyone's going any harder with you than, you know, than you are with the person next to them. It's you get hurt a lot because I think that you think you're getting hurt a lot. You know what I'm saying? It's like, they're, they're, it's like the reinforcing mechanism, you know? It's just, like, in their head and everyone's after them. It's like a persecution kind of syndrome. 
Right. I, I think it's a mix of one uh, ego not allowing them to tap soon enough or to concede certain positions. So you're going, you're going much more intense. You're letting things go a little bit further. So you're putting yourself in a position to get injured more often. And then the fact that, it, particularly with the, the case we're talking about, where the guy it's the guy that goes hard but doesn't like being, doesn't like it the other way around. They're spazzing all over the place, and then that's just going to make it more likely for you to get hurt. When you're going ballistic all the time, that increases the odds big time. You know I mean, because you're not wow. controlling what you're doing, so it's like anything can happen. You know, I have like a, a student of mine. I'm not gonna mention his name, but like he's always it's it's either no intensity at all or like a hundred miles an hour. He's like super explosive, very athletic. Yeah. But he does that. Like he's like nothing, nothing, nothing. Pow! Explodes, and you're like, whoa. That's the other thing too, because you have to be prepared. Because like if, if if it escalates and we're both escalating together, I think that's safer yeah. than you're this and this guy does this right here all of a sudden because you're not prepared. It's kind of like if you're in striking, and the guy's going hard, and you're prepared for you know for someone to hit you hard. It's completely different than for all of a sudden I just hit you as hard as I as I can in your chest. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. The pain is different. The expectation you don't absorb it. Whereas where you're prepared, I think your body just absorbs and prepares itself for that sort of damage. It's the same thing when I'm grappling. I like to escalate. I'm okay with. I hate when people go from zero to hundred, man. For some reason, it just bugs the hell out of me. Yeah. It well. For me, for striking particularly, I use that a lot, the change of rhythm. Yes. Because yes. it does throw people off. I agree. Right? No, even in grappling it does. Even in grappling. But it just sucks. It sucks as the other guy, yeah. for sure, right? <laughs> but it's a good, uh, it's like one of the things that you can do without really changing anything is just your rhythm, right? Like particularly yeah. for like striking, if you're going slow and methodical the whole time, the guy gets used to that pace and then gets comfortable there. And then the next round you show up and now you're like exploding everywhere, doing a lot of back and forth motion. It just, it freaks people out because like you're saying now, like I have to adjust to this new pattern. Yes, that's, right? And striking is a lot about patterns. Yeah. Brought, I say this all the time. I'm not a striking expert, but like I have good, I understand the game, right? I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make in MMA and striking in general is they, they, they move in patterns. And they become predictable. You yeah. know what's coming, right? It doesn't. Or like to me, the scary guy is always the unpredictable guy. You yeah. have no idea what he's going to throw at you. You got to watch out for everything. And I become paranoid because he's got so many tools. You're like, what the hell is going next? You know? Yeah. Where's that guy? He's got like a one, you know, one trick pony, like one combination. It's not a difficult guy to grab and take down. Exactly, and that's why usually you see in like in fights, like people the first round, they're even the first few minutes, they're kind of going slow, feeling each other out, measuring, and then they get the measure. Then okay, the firefight. Resumes, yeah. But, like, if you can always make them adjust the whole fight, it's very nerve-wracking for the other guy because he can never figure you out. So I, I think it is a sign of a more intellectual fighter to be able to change their rhythms throughout the fight. Like, I know, like, I, I like doing that. Like, in the, I'll start off when I'm doing striking laid back. I'm being yeah. a little more cautious, and I'm also always backing up. And that does two things for me. One, it makes the guy walk into me, which it makes it easier to do takedowns. And then two, I get to see everything coming at me. Yeah. Right? So I'm also further at range. Any strikes that do come in, I'm moving away from them already. So I'm not going to take the blow on the blow. But then I'll switch. Round two, I'll start stepping forward the whole time and marching the guy down. And then it just screws you up. Because you didn't know what's coming. You didn't know that. Yeah. And then now what's happening for me, since I'm a grappler, you're walking into me now. So I'm going to get into more clinches with what I want. And two, now you're walking into my punches also. So it, it throws you off. Yeah. And then every time you can make those pattern shifts 
And like you said, it works for grappling as well. You know, like for everything. Whenever you can make those type of pattern shifts, whether it's a movement pattern or it's a pacing, it's going to really make it hard for that person to get a good aim at you. It's like a... When you're trying to get the bullseye or the crosshairs, like a top gun and whatnot, yeah. and the target's always moving around, you can never lock in. You know, you're always trying to guess where and, the guy's and at. I, and I say this, like since we're talking about striking, like I more about my guys in my MMA class with shadow boxing, mm-hmm. right? And one, I I've moved away from your defense being your hands. I think your hands are your defense for close range. If we're close, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. If we're at this range right here, this makes no sense. It turns me into a punching bag. Yeah. So I teach them how to open up their stance and keep a wider. And if you watch the very good strikers, they're not fighting like this anymore in MMA. They're widening their stance, longer leg stance, longer arm stance, because I'm become more uh, unpredictable when my hands are out in the open versus here, you know exactly where my hands are coming from, right? And, you know, and going back to the defense thing, is your real defense is not your where your hands are, it's your head moving and your footwork. Correct. And yeah. if your fo- feet are moving correctly and you're controlling the range, you're never getting hit. And if you watch the very good strikers, the reason why like guys like like Anderson to me is like one of the best strikers of all time in MMA, he how many times do you see him walk out of a cage bleeding? Both a you know, a, yeah, yeah, a black I, it happened like maybe why you got knocked out by White and that, you know. But it's not one of those things where it had to happen on his career. And I think a lot of it has to do with his movement. Look at his movement. Head, head movement and footwork. Yeah. He was very, very crafty. Like, he was very unpredictable, like you're describing. Versus the guys that are like, you know, you can think of, I'm not going to mention names, but a lot of people, they, you know what's coming. It's, it's like the same stuff over and over and over. And I think that's the coach's job to kind of, you know, change that. Granted, as a coach, I know this, it's very difficult to get people to listen to you sometimes. Some people are excessively stubborn, man. Like they do. This is how I've always done it. This is how I'm always going to do it. I'm like, I'm not sure I can help you, man. Yeah. You know, like those people just got to be their own coaches. Like you, I don't even know why you're paying me. I think a lot of people have embraced the, the changing of stances, particularly. You see, everybody now fights both stances. Yeah. Back in the day, nobody did that. Right? Like southpaw was true. was truly a unique stance. Now it's like everybody's a southpaw and you know conventional. And uh, guys like Dominic Cruz, I think, help bring to the forefront how important footwork is. Because yeah. I mean, if you watch him fight, half of the fight is just him yeah. moving around. Probably just, the best footwork in the business. Yeah, just making people miss all the time. Yeah. You know, and, and his head's going, and his head's all over the place. Yeah, and I think that's one of the most important skills for a striker in MMA is head movement. Because in boxing, you can get away with a lot because the gloves are so big. I mean, not big as padding, but like just on the size of it. If I do this, I'm completely shelled. You won't get through, right? You would have to come around the sides maybe. But in MMA, you do this, so there's a lot of gaps here. There's a lot of gaps. You know? And if I go all the way like this, now I can't see. Not only that, but your hands are predictable too. That's the other yeah. thing. Like, you know, if, I, if I'm going to jab in right hand from here, right, you know exactly where my hands are coming from. Where I'm here, yeah. it's a lot more difficult to predict what For I'm doing. For sure. Like, Ali always had the... You like to use the low jab, and I do that also. Like from when you're out of distance, it's harder to see it because it's coming from underneath. Yeah, you know your peripheral vision usually terminates around your chest. So when you pop out, boom! And it's more yeah. mechanical too. For some, you snap it more. Was it comes from here? It does. If it doesn't, it never felt as snappy. I've never had a great jab, but it never felt as snappy as the jab that came from underneath. No, I think yeah. I was able to create more momentum. I, I feel the same way. This jab from the hip, of a, it, it just has. Because I always describe the perfect strike as like a whip. Right, it's yeah. very loose and right at the like last towel, moment, like impact, yeah. pow, boom, it snaps and then comes right back. You know, so like when you're here, yeah, this is, feels a little bit. You're you're really compressed here. It, yeah. it doesn't feel as much punch 
Versus when you're here, your arms are already loose. So when you whip it, bam. And, and, and like, everyone freaks out about the defense, but if your feet are moving and your head's moving, you're a, it's better defense than having your hands up. Yeah, you know? for sure. Granted, there are times, like you're, especially if you're against the fence, you know, speaking of MMA now, if you're, you know, you should have your hands up because it's, it's, your footwork is not there. Yes, because exactly. Because you're, you're caged, right? You're pressed against the back of the, of the fence. And now, like, it, you, you got ha- to have your hands up and get the hell out of there. But I, I mean, just like wrapping it up with the MMA thing, like I, I truly believe that we're only scraping the surface when it comes to MMA. I think that the influence, people still teach jujitsu for MMA like it's jujitsu. They still teach wrestling for MMA like it's wrestling. Same thing with striking. Like, and I know this, in jujitsu it's harder for me to see because I'm so immersed in jujitsu. So to me it's like, no, that's the way you do it. And I don't question it as much. It's, it's interesting. Whereas striking and wrestling, I've always been able to question it more. Like, why do you do it like that and not like this? Uh, this is how it's always been done. No one says it like that, but it's yeah. kind of like pretty much their answer. Like a boxer will tell you that this is how you move your feet, this is how you put your hands up, the Thai guys, this is how you throw a knee. And I'm thinking that from a jiu-jitsu perspective, I'm going like, why don't you do it like that? I'm able to think of it critically. Whereas jiu-jitsu, like, it's been harder for me to make those adaptations in a lot of ways because it's like dogma. Like you've been doing it for so long, this is how you do it. But now, like, because I'm coaching more MMA, I'm looking at like, what can my jiu-jitsu, can I change? What, what can I, uh, what can I, how can I think of this differently? So one thing I came up with, and see if you agree with me, mm-hmm. is when I'm passing your guard in jiu-jitsu, the first thing I'm looking for is underhook and head, generally yeah. speaking, right? Because I want that control, I want my three points, right? And MMA, why would I want the underhook in the head? I can't punch. You can't do damage. It's not easy to finish someone in side control of MMA, right? So what a lot of times your opponent does, he brings you in, he hugs you, now he buys time, he breathes, maybe the referee stands you back up. So what I have been doing is I'm developing the system where I have my guys kind of like go between close guard to half guard, combat stance, side control, and back and forth between those two, hoping the guy turtles up. What I really want is turtle position. That's what I really want, right? And then, but when I'm moving into side control and half guard, I frame like monkey grips on your bicep and your neck. Mm. So I can control the range. You can't really get underneath me, right? You can't bring me too close and you can't move far away because I'm kind of controlling the distance now and I can strike. So if it's a close fight, I can deliver strikes. Little things like that, right? Like on the seatbelt, on the back. I never let him get a two-on-one. I protect my choking hand. So every time you go for a seatbelt, I yank my arm out, and I'll do something else, and I'll punch. And then every time I'm going for that neck, if I see you getting that two-on-one, I'll yank my arm out. I never let him get a two-on-one. Because even a guy who sucks at jiu-jitsu, if he gets a two-on-one when you're on the back, sometimes he'll buy the whole round there. Yeah. It's not easy to free your hand. So little things that we do in jiu-jitsu that are very effective in jiu-jitsu that don't make... There are, there are ways we can improve on an MMA, is what I'm saying. And I think that those are everywhere, Dave. Like striking, wrestling, they're everywhere. We just got to keep our eyes open to make those modifications. That's a, good, uh, that's a good approach as far as creating frames versus uh, getting tight. Because you're right, like jujitsu, we want to be tight because we're trying to minimize escape and minimize distance. But as we know, you lose all your leverage for striking when there's no distance, right? I mean, elbows. If you're that tight, even when you're like this, yeah. you can't really do anything. It's not yeah. it's, you're just lugging them. So yeah, you do want a little bit of space there. And uh, the philosophy that we've used a lot, at least from my side, is pinning. But I'm not a big fan of being on side control. It's easier to escape in MMA with all the sweat and you know you're getting underhooks. I like half guard the most. Yeah, like if, there's, if there's any position I could choose, half guard. Yeah. It's the easiest position to pin somebody. And uh, I generally, I want them to try to stand up from the half guard so I can bar the arm from underneath, yeah. pin, 
and now I'm just gonna strike yeah. and ultimately you might give up your back and then I can take the back there but I can finish from the that barred arm position that's like my favorite thing to go to and we do either underhook pin overhook pin uh, what's the other one half Nelson pin there's a, a few pinning series that we work for and, and it's funny you say that because I agree I think half guard is the best ground and pound position I think ground and yeah. pound from close guard is way overrated yeah everyone's like oh grinds on top it's like man like this guy's like he's got his head down he's like punching his rib cage and like bullshit punches it's not a great ground and pound position I don't think side control is I don't think mount is yeah. I don't think it's like, I mean, mountain's a great ground and pound position if your guy doesn't know what he's doing or if he's really tired. But like, it's most guys will bury their face into your belly and it's hard to hit them. And yeah. next thing you know, you're off balance. You know, like, I, I think that half guard is king for ground and pound. Um, and, you know, it, it's funny because it's, this is interesting going, you know, just bringing jujitsu into the story. You know how the rules developed, right? Like, this is in 1967 when they came up with pretty much the IBJF system, right? It's changed over the years, but it's roughly the same. What they wanted to do, they wanted to drift away from judo. They wanted to be different from judo. They wanted to emphasize the ground because Brazilians happen to be more skilled on the ground. It's the only place they had a chance against the Japanese, long story short. Everywhere yeah. else they were losing to the Japanese. Even on the ground they were losing, but they, jiu-jitsu was, Brazilian jiu-jitsu developed this defensive system against top players. Like a judoka takes you down, you put them in closed guard, it's a draw. If I drew, I really won, right, yeah. kind of thing. Um, but they were looking at self-defense. I think judo kind of lost the self-defense aspect of things. And one thing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu did correctly, in my opinion, is that they kept that in mind, more or less. Right? Like, this is supposed to teach you how to fight. So they were rewarding positions that would be uh, dominant in a fight. Right? So if I get to, in their view, like side control is a dominant position in a fight. Mountain is a dominant position. Neon belly is a dominant position because I can drop bombs. So if you look at IBJJF system, it, re- it reflects what they interpreted, not necessarily my interpretation, but what they interpreted at the time, what would be a dominant system that would, you know, that would mimic a fight. Yeah. Right? And that's why neon belly is two points. When you really think about it, out of all points that are scored in jiu-jitsu, the one that is scored the least is neon belly. Now that says something to me. It's not great control, but they interpret it as great control. It might be great control against someone who doesn't know how to fight. How yeah. many neon bellies do you see in the UFC? Yeah. None. One in the, I mean, I'm serious. Like you don't no, see yeah, it. Yeah. Like, what does that tell you about how good that position is as far as control goes? Now this is blasphemy in jiu-jitsu circles. Like MMA guys look at me and go, yeah, of course. But in jiu-jitsu, that's blasphemy because it's dogma. You see the dogma? Yeah. Jiu-jitsu, yeah. it's so ingrained that neon belly is such a dominant position when in my opinion, it isn't. For self-defense purposes and ground and pound purposes, we should be rewarding half guard. Because I agree with you, half guard is king. Because you can always go back and forward. It's like in the middle between side control mount and close guard. And you have all those options, right? It's kind of like the middle. And it's where you can control, create more distance to deliver good punches. Yeah. Better than mounting side control, in my opinion. Yeah, I feel great position to throw strikes. The submission opportunities for the bottom guy are very limited. You have one of his legs trapped, so it's very difficult to stand up, and you have access to the whole body, right? Because I can hit to the body, I can hit to the head, easy range, without overextending myself. Yeah, the problem I always have with close guard striking is that if you go for the head, you're going to be leaning forward. Your base will be compromised, and the guy who knows what he's doing is going to pull you down, and then you have to work your way back up, get into a good posture, swing again before you get pulled down again. It's like a repeating process. And it doesn't have to be good either. For him to get an overhook on you in close guard and keep your head down, it takes zero skill. Yeah. And that guy who has zero skill will give a good grappler a hard time if he's there. Yeah, It buys him a lot of time. So, well, my striking philosophy when it's in a close guard is to be a sniper. One punch at a time. I agree. 
I am not trying to throw volume because that's only going to expose my risk more. Every punch I throw consecutively, my balance gets lost further because every strike gets leaning in. So I tell the guys, when you're in the closed guard, you have to be careful because you can get submitted if you overextend. Throw precise strikes and pick a spot to hit. Too often when people are striking, they're like, oh, I'm just punching the head. It's like, there's a lot of targets on the head. Yeah. What in particular are you aiming for? The brow, nose, chin? I agree. Pick a spot and work it out. And one shot at a time. Once the guard opens, then I could start throwing more volume because I don't have to worry about getting sucked into the hips. Go with a combat base, make sure the guard can't yeah. close. Then I can rip a little bit more or pass to half guard. But ultimately, once I'm in a position like half guard, then I could do a lot more damage. And I feel like one of the underutilized striking targets is the body. The body, particularly in half guard, is so easy to attack. And again, also very low risk because you don't shift your body weight. Right? Like even in close guard, the same thing. Whenever you punch the head, you have to lean forward. But if I punch the body, I'm pretty much staying where I'm at. And if you weaken that body, the legs are going to start falling apart too. I think a yeah. good example of someone who did this back in the day was a rampage against Chuck Liddell. If you watch that fight, at one point, Chuck's starting to win. Rampage takes him down, gets in his half guard, and just elbows the crap out of his body. Pa pa pa. Chuck's legs just went like rubber. He passed, and I, I think he TKO'd him at that point. But it was a very good display of body striking. And everybody's so head-hungry in MMA in general. Yeah. Whenever I see someone who's using good body strikes, particularly for ground and pound, I'm like, bravo. You, you know what happens is, I agree with you. I think the head strike impresses the public because it's you now you there's blood and clearly if he's bleeding he's getting his ass kicked. Not necessarily the case. Yeah, your face can be destroyed and you still won the fight. Yeah, and that's how I look at it. You know, but the fan doesn't look at it that way. And a body strike sometimes it'd be internal bleeding, yeah. and you're so damaged and a liver shot hurts like and it's hard to explain how much a liver shot hurts. A liver shot's like it, getting kicked to the nuts. But, but worse. like worse. But worse. Because it's, it's more immediate. Like yeah. you know when you get hit hard in the nuts, yeah. there's like a few. It's like a second delay, yeah. and, then, and then you yeah. drop down. Uh, liver shots, it's like shuts intense. down. It's like yeah. lights off for a second, and then like it's unbearable pain for like five seconds, and yeah. then it starts going down a little bit. It still hurts though; still very tender. But you know, um, yeah, like it's uh, um, there, there's a lot of spots in the body can do a lot of damage. Can break a rib. No one sees that. It's funny because when you talk, I talk about MMA with with people that don't know MMA. The air was like, oh, well, oh my God, like he's bleeding. It's the blood that seems to, and yeah. I'm like, that's not what you got to worry. The blood doesn't hurt. Yeah. That's just like, they call it red sweat in Brazil. It's just red sweat. <laughs> Again, it, it's just, it doesn't really bother you. It's the, it's the knee. It's the ankle. It's the broken rib, right? Yeah. It's the herniated disc on your neck that no one sees, but that's what's really bugging you. Yeah. You know, and it's, and I think that only people have been, you know, that know sports understand these things, like how much a bad knee can hurt. Right, even though it's not visible, but yeah, you're right. Strikes of the body, they they have a huge impact on the fight, but they're underutilized. Yeah, and they're very lasting too, right? Like you can eat a good headshot round one, recover, and then by round two, you're back to normal, right? But you take a hard liver shot, you're not back to normal until like yeah. the next day. <laughs> the evening, no, and know? it's it's tender. And I don't remember like uh, uh, the nut shot too. Like your body gets tender if it gets hit. Like I remember oh. like. Yeah, the PFLs commentator or a few uh, months ago, the guy got kicked in the nuts like three times, and after the third time, maybe four, I can't remember. Like I never seen it happen so many times, and then everyone's like, "Oh, he's faking it," because there's no way. Like, cause, like you can see the video, it barely touched, right? But like I think he's not faking it. Here's what happened: the first time was so legit, it hurt him so bad. 
after that, you're so tender down there. Like if, if it just touches you, yeah. it doesn't take much for you to go reset that pain back to the beginning and start all over again. So he's not fake, but it looked like it because the next, the, the, the last strikes, he barely touched it, yeah. right? But yeah, it's it's very it, it doesn't go away. No, no it, it doesn't. It, it stays. I've yeah. been on both sides of this, where I've seen the major disadvantage, and unfortunately, there's no real way of making it fair once you got kicked in the nuts. Yeah. The first time I was the guy who kicked the guy in the nuts. I was fighting a guy. I just started training MMA like three months, and I was training this guy who was a boxer, and he was just tagging me up on my feet, and we we're kickboxing. So you kicked him in the balls. I went for an inside kick and it rolled up a little bit. It was an accident. And I felt so bad, but boom, he's like, oh. And it was like yeah. a minute, and he's like, okay, we'll go back in. Yeah. Suddenly, I was just destroying him. He had no legs anymore. Yeah, he's done. And I was just running around it. I'm like, oh, what a, what a, I didn't realize how big a deal this was. You know what I mean, because yeah. like he could, I mean, he was just destroying me, and now I was running him around. I'm like, man, this is a this is unfair. Yeah. You know, like and you see the people get kicked in the nuts all the time. They're like, oh, like nothing happens. Like, no, something's happened and you can't really erase it. You know? I've been on the other side where I was roundhouse kicking my brother and he stepped side kicked me right in the balls. I couldn't stand up for ten minutes, probably. I swear to God. No, I, I've been in one of those. It was like two bricks. Boom. I was down the floor and my brother was laughing. I'm like, it's not funny. <laughs> Not fun. You actually pissed off, but you're 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 in too much pain to get up and beat his ass. I, I couldn't get up. I remember I was trying to I was trying to stand up to, because I wanted to keep going and I couldn't. I would get to my knees. Like, no, no, can't get up. Yeah. So I mean, like I when people see people getting kicked in the nuts, like oh he's faking it or he's no, like man, there's levels to this game. Like sometimes the shots so bad that you can't get up. You know the other one is like kick to the nuts, liver, and a stinger. You, mm. I mean, anyone who's wrestled, played football, and those perfectly familiar with those. Yeah. Man, down the arm, sometimes like down the neck and the back a little bit too. Like I'd feel it on my down my rhomboid. It's it's one of the, I mean it's up there with the liver shot, man. Like for like five ten seconds, you can't even think you're in so much pain. Yeah, you're just like your mind just shuts down. There's so much pain, and then you know you're on the ground for like ten minutes. Like man, what just happened? You know, and I have a herniated disc on my neck from a stinger, and I remember like the first guy that taught me a double leg was Tony D'Souza. Oh, okay. So Tony D'Souza is a guy who invented the Peruvian the necktie, necktie because yeah. he's from Peru. And he was doing that choke back in the day, so they called it the Peruvian necktie, right? That's where it comes from. And he taught me. He's got a very unorthodox style of wrestling later, I learned. But at the time, like, this guy's the best wrestler in the gym. He's going to teach me how to wrestle. I was a blue belt. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, you headbutt the guy in the gut. You know, and I'm like, okay, well, my head, oh, your head's a weapon. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, they do have a big head, so maybe <laughs> maybe that's going to help me. So I'm thinking about, like, every shot, like, some wrestlers do that. Like, yeah. they'll hit, like, oh, like that blast double, and yeah. they'll hit yeah. you in the gut with the head. And I did that for a long time, and then, like, I was always going against guys that didn't, either were lighter, lighter than me, or maybe they didn't know how to wrestle. So it worked for a while. It hurt my head sometimes, but never too bad. And I remember one time I was training with Forrest. Mm, and Forrest yeah. is, like, he's a very athletic guy. He was yeah. heavier than me at the time. And I think he, I don't know if he like leaned into the shot at the same time he walked in, but I basically went like head first into his belly. My neck went back. And I'll never forget, I remember where I was when this happened. And my neck has never been the same. That was like 10 years ago. And my neck has never been the same. Um, so no, I, I, I see some people every now and then teaching the head butt to the gut. And I think if you've got a very short neck, like big traps, like that short stuff, maybe like the injury ratio there is lower because your kind of your shoulders are attached to your head almost. Right, but if you got a normal size neck, I think that's a horrible idea. And I mean, I don't teach it, I don't recommend it. Now, I always hit people with the shoulder, which I think is even stronger than the head. Right, perfect positioning for the shot, and I'm not in danger of getting hurt. 
Yeah, I, I use the head. I do the headbutt method. It, it's a bit of technique and also knowing where to hit, right? I, a lot of people, when they do those blast doubles and they're using the head, they're going against the hip. I see or on the stomach. They're like very low. That's probably me. And what's going to happen is that your hips, for me, is your center of gravity. They're not going to really move that much. And if I'm thrusting my hips forward, you're hitting a brick wall. True. So that's one problem. The second problem is the angle of the head, right? Like for camera purposes, if you're hitting with your head like this, you're going to have a bad time because your neck's going to hyper flex and it's hyper extend. It's going to be really bad. And then it happens. Your neck cracks. I've had that happen before. Uh, so you want to hit with your head like at a 45 degree angle. So I'm not here. I'm here. So I'm hitting with this. Yeah. Right. So the chance of my neck folding this way is because that's how you hurt yourself. You're going folds. back. Yeah. Or if you are too tilted and then your neck goes forward. Yeah. But if your neck's in that right angle, boom. Like uh, the way I tell people to practice it, go in a heavy bag and headbutt it. And if you can't do it, then you're, you're not at the right angle. It's a good way of practicing. Like, I, I've been so traumatized from that. Like, I <laughs> yeah. No, no, you have an existing injury yeah. that you don't want to aggravate it. The other thing I would say besides the so when I was talking about the target, I try to hit as high up as I can. Like middle of the chest here because this part of your body is more likely to fold in very good point the other thing is the body posture if the guy is low like this you're not going to get it it's going to be much harder because yeah. he's already braced for it yeah. like for me the ideal time to blast double somebody is when they pop up yeah absolutely. so a good head snap pop 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 and they, they overcompensate and lift up that's the time you hit him because he's kind of moving back he's straight up so if I hit him here he will fold this way, and then it's going to be easy. I agree 100% with everything. The times that I've yeah. gotten into trouble with doing it is out of posture, hitting too low, and then I know I hit it, and I hear my neck go, and I'm like, well, okay. Man, it's... So I wouldn't say, like, like I wouldn't probably teach this to white belts or maybe people who already have, you know, older neck issues. It's not a... There's... It's prone to get your neck popped, right? Like... Even when you're doing everything right, sometimes you're just going to slip up. And the consequences to hurting your neck far outweigh the benefits of scoring a takedown. No, 100%. Training. Like, that's that's one of those things. It's funny because, like, now I'm far more careful with my body. I get, like, deja vus in practice sometimes. Like, if I hurt myself in yep, that position, yep, yep. like, I remember what happened the last time I did this. It's funny because your body remembers. Your memory, if you try to think of that injury, but your body knows that, oh, this is not a good idea. When I was younger, I was a lot more reckless. You know, like I'd be like, you know, if I had to go on concrete to take someone down and get those two, I'd do it in practice. Yeah. And there's like a 50% chance both of us were going to get hurt. It was still worth it. <laughs> totally worth it because I beat them in practice. You know, like that's kind of your mind. You don't want to win at any cost. And then, you know, now like I see my students doing that. I have to sit them down and talk to them. Like, hey, man, it's not worth it. Calm down. I know you want to win really bad, but you're risking, you know, you're not only injuring your partner, but yourself too. So let's... You almost have to ask them to learn how to switch off that aggression sometimes mid takedown, right? Because you know you can get blinded by your desire to accomplish the takedown or the sweep. Yeah. You know? I think that just wraps it around to where we started, which is uh, spazzy. It was spazzy, but also just being mindful of people's safety, right? Like I think what you said really struck home to me was team, right? We all win together. If you're if I win by hurting you. It was a net loss. Right? I agree. Right. So, like in training, I, I try to take the welfare of my training partner into a factor. Right. Like, yeah. I'm not gonna go reckless on him just to score like a moral victory when it's gonna cost him 
time off the mats or hurt him. You know, I mean, people have jobs and they work and they can't walk. You just ruined this guy's life potentially. You know what I mean? So like, I, 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 at the other day, it's like what I call it the golden rule, right? I want to treat others as they treat me. If I got the guy in a compromising position, I'm not going to overextend it because I, I don't want that guy to do that to me when he catches me, right? The golden rule has got to be present in the gym. And I think people, for, it's funny, man. Like people, I, you know what the golden rule is. I yeah. know, what the, it, most, I think most people, I don't know if it's, but I was talking to this other kid like like early 20, had no, had never heard of it. I'm like, I've heard of that growing up like almost every day someone brought it up. You know, like that was constantly, it's a constant theme. Like I feel like, I don't know if it's talked about less maybe, but uh I think it's super important in any environment, you know, yeah. for you to, because you need your training partners in the gym, like you need them. Yeah. It's for your, even for selfish purposes, you need those guys to be healthy. If, if in my understanding, this is a biblical yeah. teaching from Jesus, oh, right? Uh, Confucius. Yeah. Confucius. He Confucius said, said it? yeah, he said okay. it first. Yeah. I, I read something about it saying it was the, Jesus' sermon the, on the Mount. Be, yeah. No, the, Jesus said it as well. Just okay. Confucius said the same thing in different words. But earlier, okay. I want to say thousand, two thousand years before. I can't. I'm not going to give you a date here for Confucius, but like he did say it before. Either way, yeah, it just shows you very wise advice from millennia ago. It's very good advice, <laughs> and it still yeah. works today. Yeah, it's right? very applicable for sure. All right, um, let's wrap it up then. And, yeah, um, yeah. Hope you guys enjoyed, and uh, thank you for for listening. Share it with your friends, and I'll see you guys next time. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. If uh, you have any feedback or suggestions, go ahead and send it our way. You can find us on social media at Breaking the Guard and our website, BreakingTheGuard.com. A final word from one of our sponsors, DrysdaleBJJOnline.com. DrysdaleBJJOnline.com is Robert Drysdale's membership site. And... Uh, on that site, he has all sorts of courses available, uh, covering the cradle, um, guard passes, favorite mount escapes. He has set it up so that there are small mini courses uh, that start as low as I think uh, nine ninety nine or ten ninety nine. Uh, it's it's very reasonably priced, so too cheap if you ask me. So take advantage of it. Again, you can visit it and order these courses, which are available for online viewing at. DrysdaleBJJOnline.com